If you have your Bibles, please turn with me once again, just as they were this morning, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll look again at verses 3 through 14, getting lots of airtime, lots of mileage out of this beautiful passage here this Lord's Day. And as you're, as you're turning there, let me take a moment of personal indulgence just to thank you for your prayers uh, while we were away for the past couple of weeks. Um, I, I hesitate to say certain things just knowing that things are out on the internet and live broadcast things get uh, published abroad. But let me, let me put it this way. Someone asked me, was it good to be away and, and was it good to visit the old church uh, back in Virginia? It was. It, w- it was good to see those folks again. It was good to be away. But man, it is really, really good to be back at Covenant. Uh, we love you. We feel loved by you. It's very good to be back home. So thank you for your prayers. It's good to be home again and it's good to be with you back in the Word. Well, this morning we began, as I said, a new sermon series under this title, uh, a title borrowed from the, the father of the Puritans, William Perkins, the golden chain. And again, that phrase, golden chain, is in reference to Romans 8, verses 28 and 29, some of the most beloved verses, I trust, beloved by so many of us here. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, in describing our salvation, Paul outlines various aspects insofar as we experience it, the various phases or dimensions of our salvation, and each link in the chain inexorably, inevitably leads to the next. And so the golden chain of salvation, as it's come to be known, is a beautiful way to illustrate our experience of what God has been working out from eternity past and broken into the present, and is working out unto eternity future. The golden chain has become a wonderful way to describe our experience of what the Lord is up to in the salvation of his people. Another way of outlining this experience of the salvation that our God is working out, as scripture has revealed it to us, is what's called the order of salvation, or the ordo salutis. It's a, it's a logical way of getting our minds around the different aspects of our salvation as the Lord accomplishes them. And again, you've got that chart there at the back of the room. There might be some extra copies. Feel free to grab one, take that home if it's helpful to you. As I mentioned this morning, when we say the word salvation, we, we typically mean one thing. Uh, more often it seems like we mean either conversion or justification, something like that. But when scripture uses the word salvation, it means a whole host of things. Justification, adoption, sanctification, and so on. And there are multiple aspects that we learn about in scripture which rightly fall under this umbrella category, this term of salvation. And so there is a logical and experiential order to them, as you can see there on that chart. Some of those aspects of our salvation, some of those aspects of the ordo, we consciously experience. Others we don't. But scripture teaches us about all of them, and so the Ordo Salutis is derived from various sections of scripture, and we piece it all together, and it helps us to better make sense of the wondrous salvation that the Lord has worked and is working out in the lives of his people. Now this morning, we began not where Paul starts here with the doctrine of predestination or election, but actually we began with the doctrine of union with Christ. And that union with Christ, we saw, is the great context, uh, the great environment, the realm, if you like, within which all the other facets of salvation exist and operate. If you think of a wheel, all the little spokes of the wheel are things like justification and adoption and sanctification, and the hub of that wheel is union with Christ. 
No blessings, no redemptive benefits that we enjoy do we enjoy apart from our union with Christ. It's the great comprehensive term for the way in which God redeems and applies that redemption to sinners, to his people. But tonight we're going to be dealing with the doctrine of election. And I want us again to look at that passage that we talked about this morning. Ephesians 3 verses, excuse me, 1 verses 3 through 14. It's that great classical text, yes, that Paul speaks of union with Christ, but it's also a critically important place where he teaches us about election. Uh, And again, departing from our ordinary sermon practice where we give a a more thorough verse-by-verse teaching through a passage, through whole books of the Bible, for this series we're approaching it more doctrinally or more topically for a few weeks. We use this passage and then we see what it teaches us as we seek to understand the golden chain of our salvation and then the specific link in that chain, uh, for in, in tonight's instance, the specific doctrine in question, election. So with that, for introduction, let's look to Ephesians 1. Once again, we'll read God's word, and then we'll ask for his help and blessing as we study it together. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Hear now God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you pray with me? Lord God, grant us again the ministry of your Holy Spirit to our minds and to our hearts so that we might understand what we read and that you would use your word in our hearts to strengthen us as we press on and we continue in the good fight of faith. We ask that you would give us illumination and that you would give us a love for and an attention to your word tonight. Clear our minds from distractions, clear our minds from worldly cares, even for just a few moments that we might give ourselves over to considering yet another facet in the glorious and splendid diamond, the gemstone of our salvation, as you have revealed it to us in your holy word. And as we study these things, as we give ourselves over to the, a better appreciation and appropriation of this doctrine, may it not be merely yet another treasure trove in our theological archives, but may it move us to greater worship and greater conformity to Christ our Savior, in whose name we do pray. Amen. 
Now, you may recall, brothers and sisters, from this morning that we made the point to say that verse 3 here, right at the top of our, of our passage tonight, really is Paul's great thesis statement. And everything else that follows in Ephesians 1, probably really all of Ephesians the letter, but certainly Ephesians 1, everything else that follows in it stems from and flows from that great thesis statement. You see what he says? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And everything else that he says in, that great, in this great opening survey in verses 3 through 14, and, and even after that, all of it is really an exposition, an unpacking, if you like, of that statement in verse 3. Paul is going to elaborate and explain and enumerate for us the fundamental blessings that have been made and given over to us in Christ. But did you see that the very first blessing that he specifically enumerates in this passage is actually one that folks often struggle with, perhaps even questioning whether or not it's a blessing at all? Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It's a doctrine so important in this section, brothers and sisters, actually, that Paul returns to it again later down in verse 11. See what he says in verse 11? In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. This passage has always been one that has been particularly meaningful and treasured by me if for no other reason that this was the first link in the chain by which all the dominoes fell when I came to embrace Reformed theology. Uh, by God's grace, I always, uh, despite myself, was always a, a Bible-believing Christian. I always believed in a, a, an inerrant scripture and a literal resurrection of Christ, and, and so all, all those basic tenets that one must have to have an evangelical gospel faith. But doctrines like predestination and doctrines like election and things of that nature were, were a bit of a challenge to me when I was moving out of sort of a broad evangelicalism and starting to understand the basic tenets of Reformed theology. And uh, when I was in high school, I remember I was having a, an ongoing discussion with our pastor's wife. Her name was Linda, is Linda. And uh, I, I began to argue with her about this doctrine of election because at least in my mind at the time, it served as a kind of uh, roadblock or an obstacle to, to doing evangelism and missions and things like that. And so she was laying out the doctrine very carefully and very, very gently. And, and I remember saying something, well, I just don't believe in predestination. I just don't believe in that. She goes, Sean, now listen, maybe you have a different understanding of it than I do. And that's, that's okay to some degree. But you have to grapple with it. She says, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. So I did. And she goes, and look in Ephesians chapter 1. Look there at verse 5. What's the verb that you see there? He predestined us. Ah. She goes, now no matter what you make of that doctrine... It's in God's word. You believe God's word. You believe the Bible is God's word, right? Yes, ma'am. Well, then you've got to do something with that word. You've got to reckon with it. And she was right. And so from that point on, the dominoes just started to fall, at least in my mind and in my experiences. I started to come to a better and fuller understanding of biblical theology, things that we might call uh, an embrace of Reformed theology. And the first blessing in God's kindness to us as we study the scripture tonight, the first blessing 
As we think of that, the grand sweep of the golden chain that is ours in which to delight and to enjoy God, right? Since our, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, per our shorter catechism question and answer number one. The first aspect in the order of salvation that gives us cause to glorify God and to enjoy him, according to the Apostle Paul, is election. He chose us in Christ. He predestined us. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, this was later on in the, those same high school years after I had first grappled with that text. I think maybe I was in college. I came home for the summer. It was a Sunday morning, Lord's Day morning. I was going to worship at uh, my, my hometown church. And uh, at the time, they had two different services, you know, one at 8.30 and one at 11. And uh, I, would, you know, I was a, a college kid. I enjoyed sleeping in, so I never went to the 8.30 service. It was always the 11 o'clock service. So I'm rolling in about 10.45, making my way into the church building for the 11 o'clock service. And other folks are coming out as well. And I, I see a lady there that I recognize, and she has a very a scowl on her face, and she's shaking her head. And I go up to her and say, ma'am, what, what's the matter? She goes, I am just sick and tired of all these pastors bringing politics into the pulpit and talking about politics in church all the time. I'm sick of it, and I just want to be done with it. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm, I'm about to go in. I'll, I'll keep any, any, my ears open for what's happening and what he's talking about, and I'll see what he has to say. Well, I sit down and open my Bible to see what passage he's preaching on, and sure enough, he's preaching on this passage, and he's preaching on the doctrine of election. Uh, I don't know that my dear, sweet friend was quite grasping what he was going at in that particular sermon. Right? When, when you and I hear the word election, we most naturally think of a political election, Right? We think of something like the presidential election. We're, we're voting someone into political office or public office. And, and, and that use of the word is not terribly far off. Right? Our, our typical modern English usage of the word is directly connected with the more classical use of the word and, and even the biblical sense of the word that we're considering tonight. It, it's, it's sort of an antiquated way of speaking, I grant you that. But every so often, you hear someone use the verb elect in this way. She elected to go to the store on Monday, or he elected to take metal shop his senior year, or he elected to skip class that day and to suffer the consequences. It's a synonym for opt or choose. She opted to go home instead. She elected to go home instead. It comes to us from the Latin verb eligere, which means to pick out. Oxford English Dictionary defines the verb elect as opt for or choose to do something. So election, the noun, simply means a choosing or choice, both in a simple sense, but also in the profoundly theological sense by which we're studying it tonight. Now, I grant you, the word election itself does not appear in our passage tonight per se, but the meaning is simply God's choosing, and that sense is here. And the word elect or election is found all over the New Testament. Uh, Mark chapter 13, Romans chapter 8, 2 Peter chapter 1, Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 18, and many, many others besides. So election is quite simply God's choosing. God elects to save sinners out of eternal damnation and into eternal life. And he does so by and through and in his son Jesus Christ by our faith union with him union with Christ. We belong to him and he belongs to us by faith. We are bound together in mystical union forever and ever. Amen. Now, with that as a, an introduction and as a foundational segue, some people find this doctrine hard to stomach. And typically for two reasons, at least in my, in my reckoning. And what I want to do tonight with our time remaining is to look at those two objections that we often hear to the doctrine of election 
and seek to answer them from this passage. I was, a number of years ago, I was listening to a sermon on this topic, and that was how the preacher outlined his presentation, and I thought that was immensely helpful, both in defending the doctrine against objections, but also in positively commending it for the good of our souls and for our joy. So I thought I would imitate likewise. One objection you'll often hear is this. Doesn't it seem terribly arrogant to claim that we, Christians, are chosen and you aren't? Doesn't it sound arrogant to you to say we're chosen and you're not, all you, all you unbelievers out there? Isn't that grossly, heinously arrogant? And then the second objection to the doctrine of election is often, doesn't it seem horribly arbitrary that God would choose some and not choose others? Why not everyone? Why only some? Does not that make God a monster? Those are familiar objections. I'm sure, perhaps, you've even wrestled with them yourself. Perhaps you're currently wrestling with these objections in your own reckoning as you're studying through these things. But if we attend carefully to the language of Ephesians 1, both of those objections, I think, are answered for us. So let's think about the first of them. The doctrine of election, this idea that God chooses certain sinners out of the mass of fallen humanity to call, to summon to himself, and to save them, that this doctrine somehow leads to pride and arrogance. That's the objection. So here we'll say, for our first point, that this doctrine is actually not a cause for arrogance, or it ought not to be, but actually a cause of abasement. Not a cause of arrogance, but a cause of abasement. Let's think about it. Doesn't it single out some people from others, as in that they are some manner better than them? Now, that's an accusation that the world likes to level against the church, isn't it? Those Christians are hypocrites because they think they're better than everybody else. They think they're so morally superior to the rest of us. And, you know, sometimes people will feel the sting of that accusation and they'll go to a place like Romans 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestines. And they'll say, well, there you go. Predestination is based on foreknowledge. And, and by foreknowledge, people will sometimes say, well, what that means is God looked down the long corridors of time. He looked down the long hallway of time. He peered down into the future. He looked ahead and saw what we would do. He, he saw that in the future we would choose him and turn from sin. And because he saw that action, he saw that that's what we would do. He accordingly aligned his plan and thus predestined us. Well, there's at least two problems with that. First, foreknowledge in Romans 8.29 is the foreknowledge of persons, of individuals not merely a foreknowledge of actions or decisions, those whom he foreknew. God foreknows people, not just the things that people will do. It's a, it's a, a verb, or rather it's, it's language of extreme intimacy. Now, foreknowledge, of course, is in Greek, but if we were to back-translate it into Hebrew, it's the same verb that is invoked in Genesis in the garden. Adam knew his wife Eve. It's not just that he knew her name or he knew her face or he knew her hair color. He knew her in the most deeply, profoundly, and intimate of ways. It is this sort of knowledge that Romans 8 speaks of in terms of God knowing and foreknowing people. He's not talking merely about their actions or their choices, but about their persons. And secondly, the word foreknowledge itself does not mean that God gets an advanced screening. An early copy of our life movie, which he, he watches and then decides what to do based on our actions. No. Foreknowledge, in Romans 8, verse 29, means that God knows us in advance 
in all that sacred intimacy, in all that loving, tender care that, that, again, that verb knowing has in biblical language. That's a profound knowledge, and with all the connotations of love and relationship and union that come with it. And it is in this sense that God foreknows his people. That's Paul's point in Romans 8. Foreknowledge means that God thoroughly, totally, entirely comprehends. He knows the ins and outs. He knows the ins and outs. He knows all the aspects of his people and has set an affection on that person. He knows them, not merely about them, but he knows them truly, personally, really. I like how one commentator put it. Foreknowledge is the loving plan of God in eternity that finds expression in the union of Christ with his bride, the church, in time. Foreknowledge is the loving plan of God in eternity that finds expression in the union of Christ with his bride, the church, in time, in history. Close quote. It is God's purpose, you see, to fix his love upon certain people. That's what foreknowledge means. And that is precisely what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, isn't it? Ephesians 1 verse 4, look, look where Paul puts our obedience in relation to God's election. Right, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first, God's election or our trusting in him? He chose us, Paul says, in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. His election of us is not based on foreseen faith or foreseen obedience in us. I'll choose Sean Morris because one day Sean Morris will hear my voice and turn and obey. No, Paul says quite the reverse. Our holiness before God, Paul says, is actually the product. It's the the fruit. It is the consequent result. Our blameless standing before him is the end result of his choice of us. He chose us based on nothing in us at all. There's nothing in you or nothing in me that compelled him to look on us in love. Nothing lovely in us that should make him want to set his affection upon us. No, no. The love of God is motivated by another reason and another agenda entirely, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But let's, let's for the sake of argument, for the sake of argument, let's tease this out. Let's assume that that alternate view were correct. If God's election of us was based on him looking down the corridors of time into the future to see our actions, where would that actually leave us? What is it that God would see that we would do? James Montgomery Boyce once asked the question this way. He says, he said, if election is based on what God foresees an individual might do, what could he possibly foresee in a spiritually dead sinner other than rejection of the gospel? You see what he's saying? God looks into the future. He sees what you would do. He sees what I would do. He would only see what a sinner in bondage to his sin would only and ever and always do. Reject him. Deny him. Spiritually dead men and women could never run to Christ by faith. God alone, by his spirit, breathes life into the spiritually dead. God alone takes away dead hearts of stone and gives hearts of flesh. Isn't that the great point of Ezekiel? When God speaks to him, prophesy, son of man, you tell these dead bones to live. How, Lord? How? God alone takes away hearts of stone and gives hearts of flesh. And so without him doing that, and without him determining and deciding to do that in eternity, as he gazed into your future and mine, he would never see us coming to faith in him. For dead sinners universally reject their maker. 
John Calvin put it this way. What could God foresee but this corrupted mass of Adam that brings forth no other fruit but malediction? Take away election, and we remain altogether lost and accursed. Close quote. Does election generate arrogance? Do do I have any cause for boasting when I realize that those who believe the gospel are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and are chosen in no respect because of what is found in them? Any cause for boasting? Any cause for pride on my part? Absolutely not. On the contrary, it puts me down in the dust. Total renouncing of self-sufficiency or worthiness. Complete and utter abasement when I consider what a vile wretch that I am. I've always thought it interesting that on birthdays, we celebrate the one who is born. Uh, One of our boys just had a birthday a few weeks ago. Another one has a birthday in a a few more weeks since I've been thinking about this. I I, I mean, I get it. Please please don't misunderstand me. I've got nothing against birthdays per se. But I've I've often thought, if anybody deserves praise and celebration, it's mom, isn't it? Not the baby. Babies are wonderful. No no offense to to young Henry tonight. Babies are beautiful. They're, They're adorable. We love babies. But the baby doesn't get any credit for birthing himself. No, mom was the one who carried the weight. She was the one who endured months of discomfort. She endured the 72 hours of hard labor, the denial of sleep. If the child could stand up on his birthday and and, and look around and smile smugly and say, Way to go, me! Well done, self! What a top-notch job I did! I think the mother would rightly have a few choice words for her child. He's got no reason to brag. Mom did the work, not him. So it is with election. I can point to nothing in me. No no decision of my will. No no affection of my heart. Nothing in my hands I bring. No, not what my hands have done. Nothing that I felt or done. Nothing in me is the grounds or the reason for the love of God fixed upon me. There's nothing lovely in and of myself apart from Christ that God should look upon me and see something favorable that would draw him unto me. Does election generate arrogance? If we can use the words of the Apostle Paul in the old King James Version, God forbid, may it never be. I hope that we can see that the doctrine of election is not a cause of arrogance, or at least it ought not to be, but is indeed a cause of abasement, utter humility on our part. That's the first thing. But then the second objection that we often hear is that election makes God arbitrary, a cold-hearted, aloof decision. And here for our second point, I want to title it as something which is not which is arbitrary, but rather something which is awesome. And I mean that in the classic, non-flippant sense of the word. Awesome, astounding, impressive, daunting, overwhelming, filling one with a sense of overwhelming awe and wonder. So point number two, not something which is arbitrary, but actually something which is awesome. Here's the objection. This doctrine, election reduces God to a monster, choosing some and passing others by in a cold and clinical manner. Who wants a God like that? He determines my destiny with no reference to my personal life. How dehumanizing. Wouldn't it magnify the love of God far more to believe that he chooses everyone or that he at least chooses those who choose him? That's the objection. Well, how does Paul answer? Verse 5, he predestined us For adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You see, the apostle makes it 
absolutely clear that God's choice of sinners is determined by nothing besides the free and inscrutable and immutable and perfect decision of his free and own counsel and of his free and own will. Verse 11, we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's choice God's choice is based on his will, free from compulsion, free from influence, from any factors outside of himself. And that's not all that Paul has to say about election, is it? Look at the end of verse 4 as it slides into verse 5 again. If it wasn't because of some foreseen goodness in me or some foreseen positive decision or some foreseen commendable uh, attractive attribute that I possessed. What, what then is the basis of God's electing this sinner? Listen to Paul at the end of verse 4 on into verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. What a thing. Here's the great mystery of the doctrine of election. That God should love those whom he chooses and yet that love is not elicited by the loveliness of its objects. God wills to love the unlovely. God wills to love the unlovable and the wretched. He looks at you and he looks at me and he sees the truth. We are by nature filthy, evil, and we are full of selfishness and pride. We are full of anger and deceit and shame and lies and cunning and wretchedness. And he loves us. What a stunning thing this is. And you see, this is why, as one commentator pointed out, this is why John 3.16 is such a magnificent passage. For God so loved the world. B.B. Warfield, the great old Princeton theologian, commented on that text like this. He said, the world, in John 3.16, is not here a term of extension, so much as it is a term of intensity. Its primary connotation is ethical, and the point of its employment is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but rather that the world is so awful and wicked and bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all, and much more to love it as God loved it when he gave his own son for it. Close quote. You see, when the Apostle John uses the word world in his gospel and in his letters, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, the, the word world usually carries the connotation of darkness. When you hear John use the, wor- the word world, you want to hear him connoting this idea of ethical evil, sinfulness, darkness, sinister malice. Jesus came into the world. He came unto his own, his own people. And what does he say there in the prologue? His own received him not. You see, for John, world is darkness, held in stark contrast to the brightness and the purity of the light, which is the Son of God. You see that held up especially in John chapter 1. In other words, the glory of God loving the world is not the fact that God loves so many people, the way that we tend to think of the word world when we use that phrase, lots and lots and lots and lots of people, but rather that a pure and holy God loved something which was so foul and so putrid and so awful, something which hated and scorned and rejected and ultimately slayed his own son, and he loved it. That's the wonder. How can this God of purity and light set his love on something like this? 
Here is this world with all of its teeming masses of sin and iniquity and wickedness beyond measure. They hate God. They despise His ways. They turn their back on Him. They commit, un- they commit unspeakable atrocities against one another. And even when God sends them His own Son, they slaughter Him. For God so loved the world, this world, in all of its wretched, sinister darkness... Why would God do that when he would be perfectly glorified in rightly bringing justice against us and executing his wrath upon us? God would be perfectly justified to snuff us out where we stand in light of his holiness and in light of our sin. Friends, the doctrine of election does not exalt me and swell my pride. And if you ever meet someone who claims to be a Calvinist, who claims to be reformed and he or she struts about, pridefully in terms of their salvation with some sort of smug confidence on their brow. I dare say that that man is self-deceived and full of delusion. You see, those who understand the doctrines of God's grace understand that we have grounds for our deepest humility. The doctrine of election, far from making us think of ourselves as better than others, it grinds us into the dust. It doesn't make God a monster. Quite the contrary, it makes him a wonder. Why should he love the unlovely and give his son to make a wretch his treasure? While all our hearts and all our souls join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful hearts, Lord, why? Why was I a guest? Why should any be saved at all? That's the real question. Why not simply act justly and fairly and treat us the way that our sins deserve? Why not just wipe out, like he did in the days of Noah, every foul and wicked sinner right where we stand? Why does anyone get any drop of mercy? Why did you visit me with mercy at all, Lord? The doctrine of election doesn't make us praise our own greatness, as if we had any. No, it makes us praise God's greatness. He chose us. He, he chose us. We, hateful and wicked, and he elected to make us his children at the expense of his only begotten son. What greater grounds for worship? What greater grounds for service and holy boldness and believing prayer could we ever drum up than the knowledge that God is perfectly sovereign, that he is perfectly holy, that he is entirely just, and that he is incalculably gracious in the salvation of sinners? What a doctrine this is. I hope that it serves to, to bowl you over and be lost yet again in wonder, love, and praise when you contemplate the greatness and the graciousness of our glorious God. And not only that, but that it serves to encourage your soul all the more. As you store up these doctrines in the wellspring of your own heart, that it would serve as ammunition and that it would serve as fodder for the days to come, that it would serve to bolster your own confidence in the greatness and the sovereignty and the graciousness of our God, and that it would swell your heart with that sense of assurance and confidence in that you have so great a salvation, such that nothing, nothing, nothing is able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bless the Lord for his word to us tonight. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the great truth of your electing love. And we pray that a doctrine like this would indeed serve so that our cup might runneth over. As we are contemplating 
and given over to praising you for your goodness and mercy that pursues us and follows us all the days of our lives, that this doctrine would bring us much comfort, much assurance, and it would drive us unto deeper worship as we contemplate and behold you, our great and saving God. And indeed, it would be a cause for us to be again lost in wonder, love, and praise toward you. Seal your word to our hearts tonight, and we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.